Welcome back, fantasy nerds. On today's episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast, this is episode 10, by the way, we will be covering book four of David Farland's Rune Lord series, The Lair of Bones. As always, I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. Hey, everyone. And our recurring guest, uh, guest, a recurring guest, sorry, once again, <laughs> Mr. Jared Livingston. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks for being a recurring jest so many times, Jerry. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, yeah. So, gentlemen, uh, right off the bat, the first question I have for you about this book is, how long did you take from the time you sat down to the time you finished this book? I mean, so like, no, I'm not talking about how many hours of reading. I mean, what was the time space? Did you, like, you sat down in the morning and you finished it the next day at noon? Like, how was it? Because for me, it was pretty quick, relatively speaking, compared Mine to how... was probably eight hours total split eight into, hours like, total? into, like, roughly two sit-downs. Let me check my Goodreads. I'll, I'll, I'll check my You can updates. check those stats? The reason I ask is because these last uh, these last three books of the Rune Lord series, these took me, you know, a week, week and a half to read them each because I was, I was going on audiobook and I was having to listen... While I could at work, this time around, however, I was able to actually read it from page one to the very last page, completely on text, on page. So uh, it was a totally different I mean, experience for me this time around. So it took me, I I started reading it on December 30th and finished it on January 10th. But oh, Okay, so you had a wide window there. But I only actually sat down to read it four times. Yeah, yeah. And I went 18% up and then 28%, 60%, and <laughs> You have and exact stats. Wow. That was it, a lot more accurate of an answer I was looking than I was looking for. Well, it's Goodreads, you know. Dang. They track awesome. it for you. Awesome. i got to check out more of Goodreads. I hear lots of, uh, lots of good things about them. I don't know. Yeah, I no, read in me, chunks, so. Yeah. yeah, for me, it was two single sessions. And it's been a long, long time since a book has actually gotten me to do that. Uh, it was like a period of 12 hours, but I mean, it was like, I just sat down one morning, I knocked out like 40% of it before lunch. You know, I just, you know, I ate, I took a shower. That was about all I did. Maybe played a video game or two, but I mean, I finished it later that night, like, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, it was pretty much one solid day of just reading. Yeah. And, uh, it was definitely, definitely paced that way too. That's why I was reading it like that. Yes. Definitely the final yes. half, it'd be pretty hard to take a break in there somewhere. Yeah, like, definitely. It's, it's a very fast-paced book. I mean, even my memories of this, um, yeah, going back, it's, again, it's been many years since I read The Rune Lords last, but I did read these books several times over back in the day, so I remembered it decently well. Um, but things happened so much earlier in this book than I remembered. The, the biggest one was, yeah. I think it was in Chapter 6 or 7, when the consort of shadows appears for the first time, yeah, and kills Benizmin. Well, kills, kills, and yeah, uh, and I remember thinking that took place, you know, maybe around forty-five or fifty percent of the book. It's it's in chapter really six, you know, Re no, because I just finished reading the book and I still think it happened in like 60 percent of the way through. So it 30 happens at the most. Are you it, serious? It was that early. It happens on page. You got the hard copy there. Hard copy? Oh my god. I can't speak words today. The hard cover, yeah. Um, I forget how to brain. Uh, it happens on page 96 out of 421. So it takes Damn. place a little less than 25%. Like 23%. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and I like. 
I don't know. I was expecting it to be a lot more slower paced, kind of like, you know, the, the previous three books have been. Um, I was really, really impressed and pleased when I was, you know, in, in the first few chapters. I believe it was like chapter three or four. And Gaborn and Averin and their party is already headed into the mouth of the world. Mm-hmm. They're already in. They're actually going down there already. I was expecting that to start halfway through the book at the end of the book. And it would be, you know, the journey itself would be a lot shorter, but that was, I mean, the entire book was yeah. the journey, at least, you know, um, for their characters. So, I mean, I think it started off fantastically. Um, I really, really liked the atmosphere of, of this book at the beginning. It was very, uh, I actually had a, some specific notes written about this here, right at the very beginning, uh, in chronological ho- order here. Um, I really like the tone of this one. It could be just because I started and finished this one, as I've said, entirely on page. But, like, the imagery in Chapter 1 is awesome. Like, the atmosphere is perfect. You have the stars that are continuing to fall from the heavens. There's, like, a sort of hushed reverence to the whole thing. It kind of, like, it felt, honestly, a lot like the beginning of uh, A Memory of Light, in my opinion. Um, There was this, this, like I said, this kind of hushed reverence, this kind of beautiful stillness, this kind of um, this sense of the deep breath before the storm or before the plunge mm-hmm. and uh it was really foreboding going into it so that's i mean that might be part of the reason why i read so far and as fast as i did you know yeah yeah and, and so we still have you know the the same sort of uh through lines in this story where we have gaborn sure yeah on his you know his quest and then you have bornson and merima doing their mm-hmm. thing you have aaron connell doing her thing and you have raja ten uh, I I want to get your opinions on, uh, in general, how you okay. thought each of those plot lines was executed, but in okay. specific, Bornson and Murama and the hmm. whole uh, quest to Inkara, because yeah. that, it, you know, while I, I did like this book, uh, I gave it four stars on my most recent review on Goodreads. Okay. But... I thought on this I reading that Borenson and Murama and, and that whole Inkara plotline was a big letdown. It was a giant dead end. No kidding. They didn't yeah, achieve yeah, anything. You know, so they... they well, I mean... It they takes had, them they, they, multiple books to get there. Yeah. Murama and Borenson both almost die on the way. Yeah. Several times. Uh, Murma basically were, does die and then gets, you know... You know they, they go through some very meaningful struggles along the way. They discover yeah. a lot and about themselves and the nature of their marriage, I would argue. They, they do. The there's way. there's important character development that happens along the way, but there's no end result. The whole point was them going to Ankara to get help for the battle and to find yeah. Dalen Hammer. They yeah, get there. We heard they find out Dalen Hammer's yeah. gone. Mm-hmm. And they get the help for the battle, but then the Ankaras never show up in the in the battle. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Sorry. Uh, I would argue that the most uh, profitable uh, end result of Bornson and Mirma's quest into Inkara would just be to, like recruiting the help of the days. Um, that in itself, I think, was pretty invaluable. Yeah, but even then, what real value did Sarka Kowal bring? Oh, he provided uh, valuable information in real time about what was happening across the world. Was it, or was it? Would you argue that it wasn't that valuable? There was no like he his actions had no bearing on the outcome of the battle against the reavers i would argue it's just like this like what it symbolizes they are starting to turn the days as i mean some of them you're starting to reveal the humanity of of these people and in fact that some of them might not agree with you know 
their charges and they might not agree with their entire purpose and they are going to then rebel and decide, okay, I'm going to do what I can to help humanity because there might not be a humanity sure. if we don't. But I we mean, already have that with Iome's New Days. I guess, yeah. Yeah, she, I actually kind of forgotten about her. She was the young one, right? The young girl? Mm -hmm. She was like kind of like a scion still. She she struck me as like a like a teenager. Yeah, she was like I 16. Was. Yeah. I think the whole plot line with the days could have been applied to any other character's days instead of Bornson and Merima. I mean, I yeah, guess they, I guess they escaped Carlin's with the uh, rune for Will as but, well, but which they never, they used, never it. used it. <laughs> yeah, it, that yeah. the whole Bornson Merima <laughs> plotline in this book felt like a lot of unfulfilled promises to me. There were several okay, okay. opportunities for really cool big things to happen, and none of them ever quite happened. Yeah, I, I would agree with that that much, definitely. Um, like, we didn't get as much gratifying, um, I guess, just, just plot lines that are that are tied up um, with Borns and Amir. It, it does definitely feel unfinished. I definitely agree with you there. Like, they went there. I was hoping to, to at least hear something about Dalen Hammer to find some clue of his whereabouts or, or what he's trying to do or if he's even still alive, in fact. I mean, we assume so, but we don't actually know that, mm -hmm. do we? I mean... Well, so, if, if he's been alive this long, you have to assume he's still alive. Although I, I, I will say I did really, really enjoy the interactions between Sir Borenson and the Storm King. I, that, that was his title, yes? Yeah, the yeah, Storm, the Storm King. King. I mean, they had some pretty interesting banter back and forth, especially after, you know, they realized their mutual hatred for one another was kind of funny, and they were able to laugh it off. I mm -hmm. was kind of, you know, giggling along in that scene there, too. But, uh, yeah, as far as, you know, narratively speaking, you're right. That entire plot line really served no major narrative purpose did it yeah it, it felt like a time killer for yeah, born and Merma to do something while mm -hmm. all the other pieces are put in motion and laid out for the final battle and then you bring yeah. Merma and bornson back for that and of course you know they they each played their their very important parts in, in the final battle especially mirma of course mm. oh yeah yeah um but yeah yeah i mean i would for the most part i would i would agree 100 percent with what you're saying i would say unfulfilled for sure Especially given unfinished. the outlook that was presented in the first three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But then on the other hand, we have Erin Connell. Uh, how did you mm -hmm. guys feel about her plotline? I, I, you know, I get a little excited every time I see her name uh, at the beginning of a chapter because I know we're going to get more information about what I want to know about, which is, you know the one true world. I want to know more about the other world and everything that's happening there. I want to know more about the lo the loci, the lo loci? locus. Yeah. yeah, is that how you pronounce it? Thank you. Um, I want to know more about all of these things. I'm not really too invested in the struggle with the Reavers anymore because starting around, you know, the end of book three, I was really becoming convinced that the Reavers are not really the big problem. They're just kind of trying to share the Earth with mankind and not able to share it. I like I never well, really got the, the feeling that they were the the Trollocs, you know, or the orcs. They were they were not the big end game. They weren't the final final boss. And uh, so I, I really just wanted to get back whenever I saw Aaron Connell's name. I was like, oh, okay, we're gonna hear more about the owl. We're gonna hear more about the glories, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I got I was excited for for most of uh, her scenes and uh, following her along there with King Anders and his whole retinue was um, eerie. I guess it was a little unsettling. Oh yeah, uh, seeing the kind of powers that King Anders was expressing, um, the, the things that he was claiming, um, it kind of made me a little afraid for for Gaborn specifically because, of course, as we know now, he was 
you know, King Anders was supposedly claiming to be the the new Earth King. Yep. I mean, and, I uh, thought Anders felt a little transparent, but... Did you? I don't know. Like, as soon as Aaron Connell was that suspicious of him, I immediately thought, this is misdirection. We're going to look for somebody else in his immediate retinue. I mean, there Maybe was certainly a little ambiguity or... in, like, oh, is it Anders or is it Kelenor? Like... Yeah, so like I was like, okay, maybe Selenor, or, or but no, nah, like I was just just right away with how suspicious she was of King Anders, I was immediately wary. I was like, oh, this is a red herring. But no, I mean, it turned out to be King Anders, right? Yeah, um, and Kelenor yeah. changed quite a lot from when we met him in Brotherhood of the Wolf to the end of this yes. book. He he becomes a lot more unlikable. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. A lot. Yeah, he was definitely a sympathetic character at the beginning. Definitely but... a dysfunctional relationship with his father. He made some uh, questions. Otherworldly powers aside. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this is your wife, right? Like, okay, like, you, you gotta at least trust her a little bit. He just seems to completely dismiss anything that she has to, to worry about concerning his father. He's got this huge blind spot in yeah. his life where his father is concerned. Well, but how it was much good of that to see him eventually overcome character, that. and how much is that influence from Anders. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, like, for like for example, when I saw him craft that land bridge, or well, I, I didn't see him clearly, I read him yeah. crafting that land bridge to Karis, I was like, oh, he may actually be legit. Uh-oh. Like, that was my first big uh-oh moment. Um, and that was, you know, of course, at that moment, Gaborn is really, really deep in the underworld. He's on his way to the Lair of Bones, and it's like, does he is he going to be totally screwed? Like, you know? But, um, but then immediately after he builds that bridge, and Kelenor goes to Aaron. He's like, look, you can't even deny it now. And she's yeah, like, Aaron I didn't had a see good him point. move the earth. I saw him I use saw the wind. wind. Yeah, I like... That was a very good... That was a very, very good point that she made. So I was, you know, that I was still on her side like, mm-hmm. right in that moment. But that just, like, you know, the imagery in that scene and as it unfolded, I mean, in the moment I was concerned but you're right there was a there was an off comment by Aaron immediately afterwards that made me go oh yeah you know fair point fair point okay mm-hmm. still suspicious that's for sure um so yeah that that's basically what I felt about Aaron Connell I like her and I want more of her because I felt like her storyline was more vital to the second arc that you know comes eventually with Scions of the Earth so that's why I was so interested in her at least so have you have you read like any summaries or or no, um, I will admit, in preparation for this podcast, I went ahead and I at least looked at the names of the, the next books and, you know, the title of that second entire novel arc, you know, books six, or I should say five through, it's going to be eight, nine? Well, it'll be Tale nine. of Tales is yet to be released, yeah. But, I mean, I, I figured that we are going to be closing off the Rune Lords, the first arc, so I should at least, you know, be able to speak about, very vaguely, about the second arc. So um, I, I did a little bit of research, but not much. Like okay. definitely not much. I was just curious because she, uh, you know, without spoiling anything, her daughter sure. plays a, a large role. Oh yeah. Well, I imagine Gaborn's son plays a huge role too. Yeah, I, I Gaborn's two since... Gaborn's two children and Aaron Connell's daughter oh, that's right. are I the main characters. Yeah, the second child. Fallion uh, is the name of the first child. And Jazz. Jazz. As the second child, yeah, okay, yeah. From from the get go, I figured that those children are going to be important. I totally forgot about Aaron Connell's uh, child. Yeah, mm-hmm. dang. Okay, I'm a little more excited now for the second arc. Yeah, well, I, judging from what you've said about what you were most invested in in mm-hmm. these front four books, 
uh, I have a feeling you're going to really like where it goes in the last half because it is much Sweet. more focused on on sort of the netherworld politics and, and the loci and the battle between the raven and the glories and... Yeah, and the shattering of the one true world yeah. and all these, you know, uh, millions upon millions goes of goes into, like, yeah. the deep lore of this universe that Farland has Sweet. See, that's what I like. I, I, I'm always searching for the deepest lore. If there's something deeper, I immediately kind of... I guess it's kind of a flaw for me, but I stop caring, caring about the smaller stuff. I want to go deeper and deeper every time, <laughs> you know? So... So Jared, what what uh, were you most invested in? I mean, <laughs> as a single character, I guess I'd say Mirama. Yeah. Um, honestly, looking back over the four books, I never really felt that invested in Gaborn's journey. Sure. Um, so I guess that's what I was least invested in. Um, I would say some of the lore. Certainly, Aaron's scenes into the Netherworld were extremely interesting to me. I don't know if I'd say heavily invested, though. It's hard to say. Yeah. So right, I, have, right. I have a comment a about Gaborn, and I, I think this kind of plays into what a lot okay. of readers, the experience they have with these, uh, Hit me. this first four-book series, is that Gaborn is ostensibly the main character. It is the Earth King series, and Gaborn is the Earth yes. King. Yeah. But... Arlen spends so much time away from Gaborn that it it's very easy for Gaborn to get lost in the mix. And because he doesn't have as emotionally charged or as immediate a conflict, mm-hmm. you know, everything with him is big, you know, large scale, yeah. save humanity. Yeah, you know, he it's very removed so and abstract. Whereas things like Borenson's plotline. Mm-hmm. He has very immediate moral and and personal and interpersonal conflicts Mm -hmm. that hit home, and we get a lot of time in his head, as much, maybe even more, than we get in Gaborn's head. So as the series goes on, it's easy for Gaborn to get kind of lost in the mix and pushed to the side, which I think is a very interesting decision Farland made as the author, was that this is a short series, all things considered. And it yeah. takes place over a very small time frame. Yeah, it's only a few. But weeks. we have like, what, six or seven main point of view characters? Yep. I mean, we got Gaborn Iome, Bornson mm-hmm. Murama, Raja Ten, Aaron Connell, mm-hmm. you know. And, you usually and, and that's, and, and of Aaron, yeah. And yeah. that's not even counting like Roland, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, so that's a, a lot of characters for a relatively small space. And so I don't think that it gives Gaborn's character enough room to really uh, um, hit I'll home. grow. Okay. Yeah. Like, there, there isn't enough room for a big impact on the reader in Gaborn's journey. I agree. And I that agree. I think, uh, the specific conflicts with some other characters work better in that limited space, specifically mm-hmm. Aaron Connell and Born Cinemarama. Yeah, like I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think Gaborn being treated as the symbol that he is with, with the magnitude of his struggle and how much he kind of has to sacrifice out of his own personal life, he's less, he, he's, it, it kind of takes away a lot of his relatability, um, in mm-hmm. which, of course, you can get out of other characters like you've listed, like, like Sir Borenson and Mirma and their difficulties with their marriage as they, you know, try to figure out how they're going to treat it, um, 
characters like Gaborn, like Raj Otten, they're they're more they're they're larger, they're more spectacular, but because of that, they do take away a lot of relatability. And I can absolutely see uh, exactly what you're saying. I wasn't as a person invested in Gaborn um, and his character so much as I was just invested in his mission, right? Yeah. Um, he was a little more important to me with his mission than he was as, as a character. I didn't really, you know, I, and I have a, a note about Gaborn here. It's actually at the very end, but this is, it's a good, this is a good spot to uh, insert it here. It really feels that like he's grown into his own and matured as a character. But I mean, to me, like to be totally honest, he kind of still feels like the same character that we met at the beginning of the first book. Yeah. Um, like, I don't, I don't I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, it feels as if no matter how willing Gaborn, the earth King is willing to suffer and sacrifice for his people. I, I'm still pretty certain that Gaborn, the lovesick and naive Prince of Harridan would still have done all of these same things. Um, yeah. So I don't feel like he grew as a character as much as he did as a symbol. I would that agree with sense. that. And I think a key part of that is that from the get go, from the beginning of the sum of all men, Bornson really didn't have any flaws. Bornson? Uh, uh, excuse me, Gaborn. Gaborn okay, didn't really you have any flaws. got me flaws. worried that I was talking on this he whole was, tangent about the He was already, character. yeah, that's my bad. Um, uh, he was already kind-hearted and has been yeah. raised the right way and studied the proper things and goes about his life in a moral way. He didn't have, like... A, a real killer character flaw. Yeah. And the closest we get to that is his... Um, ignorance? Uh, it's kind of ignorance, but, but more specifically his uh, his eagerness to see Rajaten as an enemy. But Okay, yeah. But that doesn't really land as a flaw when he, Rajaten is the enemy. Yeah. You know? That's true. Like he he does kind of have a have a tendency to kind of personify all of his problems in this single opponent who is Raj Otten. He uh I like it was he definitely overcame it a lot for book four. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. I would say in books one through three. I mean, I, a lot of times I found myself saying, "Okay, Gaborn, I know you hate the guy and he is evil, but there is a bigger picture. You need to stop focusing on this one man that well, much." I I mean. Kind of, but he should, at the same time, he should have been, like, focusing on Raja Ten. Well, Farland did make it kind of convenient for him, did he, didn't he? Like, yeah. Raja Ten was, was really... It would have been much more interesting had your early prediction, or your early hope, Rob, that Raja Ten would want to switch sides and become, like, the yeah, warrior the of warrior. the Earth. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Had he made for. that choice, and Gaborn still insisted on seeing him as an enemy, that would have become a real, you know deadly character flaw and that could have made things very interesting i just felt like he had the same he was going through the same problems in book four that he was in book one it felt like yeah i can see that he's still sure. i mean and, and i guess it kind of makes sense when you take into into fact like the entire length of the narrative it chronologically speaking it only takes place over this like from the beginning of book one to the end of book four i'm pretty sure is less than a month Right? It is. It's like it's only like three or four. They weeks. they specifically say it's like less than two weeks. Yeah. Well, they say something like previously had been less than two weeks, but I got the the feeling that their journey into the underworld took quite a bit longer. No, it was three days. Three days. Three days. Oh, then again, they do all have endowments of metabolism, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gaborn yeah. talks about how it feels like it's been, you know, like yeah, right. Maybe that's where I'm getting that from months and months because he's got yeah. like by the end of it the elevated something times. like fifty endowments yeah. of metabolism. I think he's got over a hundred by the end. Uh, he guesses, but there was one point where um, 
No, I think one of his facilitators specifically said to Iommi that we've uh, endowed him with over 100 at this point. Uh, the problem with that is in the epilogue, it specifically talks about the time frame of the year going on and how many years Gaborn aged in that. Right. And it was Something like did not 50 years in one year. Mm. So he can't have had over 100 endowments. I, me I remember having a specific problem with the math in the epilogue because it didn't quite line up with 100 times the metabolism. That might have been the exact moment. What's one uh, but metabolism hey. endowment? How much faster yeah. it, it doubles. It, it, so, so it's like if you have two endowments of metabolism, you age three days for every day you live. Because you still have to add it on top of your own metabolism, right? And part yeah, of the equation. Yeah. Um, speaking of the endowments of metabolism, there was a pretty cool, uh, I guess, application for them, or like that I hadn't even considered. I don't want to call it an application. I just can't think of the proper word at the moment. But I didn't stop to consider the effect that it would have on the gestation period of a human oh, yeah, baby, yeah. of a human fetus. Uh, when near the end of the book, of course, it said that Gaborn's son was born so much earlier than normal because of Iomi's endowments mm -hmm. of metabolism. I had a really cool moment where I went, oh, I guess that, yeah, that does kind of make sense why hadn't i considered that yeah and i guess that does give us a really convenient character upon which you know to have a protagonist in the second half of the in the entire sequence of farland's mm -hmm. uh, rune lord series so uh yeah that was that was a cool little uh bit of i don't know world building uh that farland included in there yeah i mean the the work he does with the whole system of endowments and dedicates over yeah, the, the course of the series the real world. is just so yeah. rich it's so well, you learn you... more about the system with each book. Yeah. <clears throat> New applications. Yeah. There's, he still finds questions to answer that you hadn't even mm -hmm. thought of answering, or, mm -hmm. or asking, I should say, yet. And uh, so I have, that's, that's... I have another question on this topic. Sure, sure. Uh, do you feel like... Oh, okay. well, actually, I guess there's a kind of a precursor question to that. Do you think okay. there was a conflict that needed to be solved over the course of these four books regarding the use of endowments. Like, did you feel like there was a moral, was actual I for conflict? To drop? Was I waiting for, like, some sort of consequence uh, hiding in the wings? Is that what your question is? I don't, I don't think necessarily a consequence, but more something like... Uh, waiting in the wings? That, that the characters would have maybe chosen... No, this is morally wrong. I will not take endowments. I, I mean, I had that has been in the back of my mind this entire time. Uh, there was no really one specific moment where I, I thought, okay, hold on, how, like, is this is this actually cool or not? Uh, but I mean, th from book one through the end of book four, I did have that small voice in the back of my mind, you know, asking like, are they really in good conscience, like, taking dozens of endowments each? I mean, they're consigning dozens and dozens of people in some case hundreds in Raj Otten's case thousands of people to a life in, in the case of endowments of stamina or endowments of grace just a life of torture like it kind like what kind of um effect does that have on the on the human mind to know that this many people are sacrificing that much to help you I mean I guess it kind of grants you the onus of you know responsibility and, and power um and you you know it kind of lends you a measure of dedication to your cause because you don't want to feel like you're doing this in vain. But, mm. I, I mean, I was kind of conflicted with certain characters' complete willingness to take dozens of endowments, of, of, of the hard endowments, metabolism, eyesight, uh, you know, grace, stamina. I mean, these are major, major things to be doing to other people.
Jared, what do you I, think? Um, well, I do think Iome has a pretty big moment where she faces the moral question of betraying Gaborn's own morality versus what she views as probably saving mankind. Yep, yep. <clears throat> That's where Iomi kind of won a little bit of respect, more respect in my books at least. Uh, and so my follow-up question then is, do you think that the sort of end result that not only Iome but Gaborn in specific uh, comes to this idea that he's okay with receiving endowments as long as they are willingly given. That was Iomi's decision, not Gaborn's. Well, though, right? but Gaborn came to this decision back in Brotherhood of the Wolf. When, oh, yeah, okay, okay. before they're riding to Karis the first time, he says, I, I will only accept this. from people who understand that this is an yeah. act of war and, you know, on all of that. Do you think that that is a, uh, an acceptable moral solution to this quandary of the giving of endowments and the keeping sure. of etiquettes? Yeah. Sure. I believe that people should be allowed to give up, you know, I mean, this is my own personal be belief, but people should be allowed to give up whatever they want for their cause, if it's a, if it's a just and, and right cause. Okay. Um, I, I, like, as long as the characters themselves are conflicted about it, and this is, I guess, kind of, you know, sadistic in, a, in, a, in an odd way, but as long as the characters themselves who are receiving the endowments feel bad about it, I'm fine with it. Does that <laughs> I mean, make sense? Isn't, uh, if, if, they're, if they were just taking them and it's like, yes, this is my due course and everybody owes this to me, I would not like that character. But if the character, like a born, is legitimately conflicted about it, and tr I mean, I feel like they will treat those endowments with the respect they are, they are they deserve. So yeah, like, no, I don't have a problem with that. I don't know if I would say necessarily they need to feel bad about it, but those rune lords, in my mind, should be aware of the mm -hmm. responsibility that comes with it. Right. And not only now, be aware of, but accept the responsibility. I could, I could see. Well, do you think? It, I don't know enough about the magic system to really discuss the feasibility of this path. But what if it was required that anybody who was going to receive one of the major beneficial endowments be required to live without their endowment for a little while, just so that they they can appreciate um, the sacrifice that their dedicates are making? Is that even feasible? Is that possible with a magic system like this? Can you, you know, give away an endowment and then receive yours back? No, you have to kill a dedicate. You have to kill a dedicate, eh? Yeah. I guess that's kind of a major... Yeah, that's kind of a major... Or, or kill the rune lord, rather. Yeah. Still, though, I just... I wish there was a way that a lot of these characters who are just receiving all these endowments had a way to, like, appropriately contextualize... You know, the sacrifice that their dedicates are making. Like, and I, I hearken back to what I said. I don't know how many podcasts ago now in this specific series. It kind of raises the question as to who the real heroes are. Are they the rune lords or are they the dedicates who are sacrificing so much? I think that's uh, yeah. part of what we get with Chamois Chimois, and yeah. Chamois. Chamois. Yeah. And Deer. Dearborn. Dearborn. Dearborn hawks. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah. uh, I don't know. Isn't that the whole point of her storyline? Yeah, I, I think it is. Yeah, I was, I was really kind of like, I don't know, unfulfilled with the whole Shimwaz thing. No, I, I think Jared's nailed it there. I think that was the entire point of her plotline is to show and us that's why, the heroism uh, of the dedicates, of the people yes, who are making okay. these decisions. 
Yes. I was just disappointed, I guess, and this is kind of stupid, but I was just disappointed that it had to be Chamois. I was like, I, I feel like maybe we could have got a whole new character in, in I don't know. It was, I guess it was kind of a, a, a neat way to tuck away her character mm-hmm. and still give it meaning. Um, but I don't know. I kind of liked Chamois near the beginning, so I was just, I was yeah. kind of bummed out that she had to consign herself and then, that she didn't have to, that she chose to consign herself to that. I think then we get the contrasting how you can abuse it with Raja Ten's um, facilitator guy, whose name I forget, who is basically like oh. trying to yeah. lie to the... Oh, I have his name written right here. I have a whole paragraph written about that slimy eel. Hold on a second. That's kind of where you get uh, the opposing view, right? Yeah. Tarouche. Tarouche, yeah. Tarouche. What I said was, damn, Tarouche is a slimy prick, isn't he? Though, admittedly, I read the scene where he describes in salivating detail all of the foods that the orphans will get if they give up their endowments. <laughs> I was like, I was really, really hungry myself when I was reading that scene. As I said, I read these books. I read, I read this book for hours straight. So in that moment, I was close to thinking. And then you kind of get Give the... my own eyesight for some of what he's talking about right now. You kind of get the whole thing where his, his greed is kind of used against them where... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> by being so like ravenous, just stir. ravenous and unforgiving, and getting as many as delicates as you can yep. by as doing so, that causes the downfall of the whole thing, right? Yep. Oh yeah, I loved that part. I loved it when um, the guy's name was Balamar. Yeah, Balamar. Um, when he when he turned when he turned out to be an assassin, mm. I was like, oh my god, this is awesome! Like I had, another... I had no. I didn't even see that coming. I had no idea. That took me completely by surprise, but it was a welcome surprise. It's another, like, I think, great example of just applications and potential repercussions of the magic system that you don't really think about right away. Yeah. Farlin has thought of everything. Hasn't he? Like, he's thought of everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really well done um, in in most ways. Uh, You know, I brought up uh, my main gripes. Um... But but maybe going to the flip side, do we want to go over our three favorite scenes each? Uh, I I do. There's there's still a couple of things I wanted to talk about right uh, before that, just okay. about how the book ended. A couple of gripes that I sure. have, I suppose. It's mostly with Averin's character. Um, hmm. I, she just didn't feel genuine to me. Is that the word I want to use? Perhaps she she definitely, especially towards the end, she felt more and more like a Mary Sue. She, I just felt like there was no wrong that this girl can do and that she's already saved the day before we even got to the end of the book. Um, like, sh- hold on. Again, I, and Drew, I asked you this question um, while I was reading this book. I sent you a Facebook message. But how old is Averin? Like, we, we know for a fact she's 10. Yeah, because she meets her dad. Her dad uh-huh. has been in the, in the oh, that's her prison father? for a decade. I didn't actually realize that was her father. I just thought he was well, a, well, a mentor. She, he was a trainer. Her father's bones were in there. Oh, that's but right. Her he, father's he bones. Was that's right. She only missed him ago. by Yeah, and she only missed him by like a very small amount of time, right? Yeah, that was yeah. kind of the heartbreaking um, thing there. Yeah, no. Specifically about uh Averin though. Um hold on. It's it okay, Averin's Oh, I did call it, by the way. I think I may have mentioned this earlier in one of the other podcasts. I hope I did, because I did see that. I kind of see this coming, but her self-appointed task was to protect the Reavers. Yeah, I, uh, I asked you specifically about that, and, and I may, oh, yeah? may have led you on a little bit too closely to the, uh, to the uh, answer. It was definitely in my head from very, very early okay. on. Okay, yeah. Uh, but it, I'm, it, it, 
still could have been the fact that you were leading me along a little bit, perhaps. But specifically with Avrin, um, it's just she didn't feel, I don't know, like like she had any flaws. Like, okay, like for on, on one hand, it was really gratifying to see her kind of exploring her Earth powers and how, you know, they're unique to her. But like she's what uh, at this and then my in my notes i said she's what nine or ten but there's a moment where she's dangling from a great height she's being chased by reavers intent on killing her she's able to retain the presence of mind to not only count like gaborn's free fall into the lake but to do the math in her head on the fly to kind of gauge the you know the distance down and even when she lands she's the only one in the entire party Benisman included who has the presence of mind to realize oh hey wait we should kill this reaver that followed us because if the others don't smell its death scent they will follow. I mean, this it just kind of seems like way too advanced of a thought process for a character who's supposedly just like a 9 or 10-year-old girl, right? Yeah. Um, granted, she has endowments of wit, right? So, or a and endowment Doesn't she have some metabolism, too, at that point? She so. does. She does. But it, it is fair to, to point out that she feels much more like a maybe 17 or 18-year-old than a nine or ten year old well, she reads like one definitely yeah she reads like like uh you know somebody who's very very intelligent and mature and developed but i mean it's like again it was only just days or i guess maybe at this point weeks ago that she just she discovered she has the potential to be an earth warden but now in the in the deepest depths of the underworld in the heart of the reaver's power she's using her magical staff to carve the seal of creation the seal of the deep I mean, she she bores a hole backwards to the surface, uh, to, you know, to save the day with with to bring Gaborn along. Granted, Gaborn lent her a bit of energy or power for that you know, mm-hmm. that feat there, but a I just, bit. <laughs> to me, it feels like she just she was immediately perfect and she knew her way around everything and she had no flaws. So I just Avarin to me kind of felt a little Mary Sue. That's fair. And actually, uh, I I have one more gripe. Um, and, sure, sure. And that Let's get right jumps the way. off easily from what you were just talking about. We were talking about the, how she makes a seal of creation and the seal of the deep, and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my gripe here, and I don't know if this is just because I'm reading the first edition hardcover. I don't know if these things were fixed in later editions or what. Okay. But there are so many typos and <coughs> excuse me and mix-ups in this book. Multiple times there were scenes in. Borenson's point of view, where suddenly it's like, oh, Gaborn did this. Where yeah. he clearly just wrote the wrong name in. Mm-hmm. And then, I didn't notice any moments and, of that myself. And the thing with uh, Averin is that when she first starts making the seal, it's called the Seal of Life. And then yeah. two paragraphs later, that. it's the Seal of Creation. It was... I, I accidentally wrote down the rune of life when I was making my notes here, and I had to change it to the seal of life. But then I went back and saw the seal of creation, yeah. the seal of the deep. And I so was like, wait a second. So their names change like mid-page, and the other really big one was the uh, the prison fortress in South Crothen, uh, Raven's oh. Gate. Right. Raven's Gate. It's it's where uh, they were gonna lock away Aaron Connell when they decide oh, that she's yeah, yeah, yeah. psycho. Okay. And and I mean like and this is this is the name of a chapter. There's a chapter called Raven's Gate. And uh, um, let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, yeah, chapter twenty one, Raven's Gate. At the end of the book, in those last couple of chapters with with Aaron and and King Anders and Kelnor and and all that, suddenly that castle's called Raven's Croft. Croft. 
one word, Ravenscroft. Whereas Ravensgate was two words. But they're talking about the same fortress. So there are things like that in this book that they're just like little continuity errors. How did you catch something like that? I would in a million years I would never have caught something. There like are a that. lot of them though, and that's that's the thing, are you they? know. And it, and it went all the way back to the the early books where I talked about how the uh, the map of Indopol had oh, the country yeah, called Mutes, but then they at turns called it Mutaya Mutin. or Muyatin, oh, yeah. and yeah. and never ever called it Mutes. And then in the third book, suddenly. Uh, <laughs> The map gets updated to Mutaya, and then a new co- country gets added to the map called Muyatin, where he like retconned it. So I'm curious to see if in later editions of this book, these little things are fixed. Uh, well, who knows? You know, yeah, I feel like in the Kindle if edition, if you're listening I to this noticed. in the future and you have later editions, yeah, well, and that would be that would be probably the most recent edition is whatever's on Kindle because those uh, update. Yeah, I mean, I have the e right in front of me. I suppose I could check. Um, yeah, so that's that's my last gripe, I guess. Is it was yeah. just a okay. not a not a well edited book. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. I mean, I if no I would have noticed gripes. that, it would have bothered me too. Definitely. I just, I, I definitely would not have noticed until you had uh, said something. Yeah. Um, so, anything else you want to get out of the way? You, you did, uh, Drew. You mentioned you wanted to talk in depth about the consort of shadows. Have you had your chance? Uh, I haven't really, uh, but I was going to get there in, in one of my favorite scenes. Oh, okay, okay. So. Uh, do you guys just want to dive into the favorite scenes then? Sure, sure. Okay, I, uh, first I want to I want to preface this by saying that I actually totally forgot about our favorite scenes, um, <laughs> and I have been hurriedly writing them as I've been having this discussion. I have two out of three, so I do have two to list. Okay, well, um, I can I can kick it off then if you guys want to sure, take a sure. minute to... Yeah, so yeah, go for it. Uh, I'll start then with the um, that first. It, it's really like a sequence, uh, starting when the Reavers corner Gaborn and Iome and Benizmin and Avarin, and they start that chase, which culminates in the appearance of the Consort of Shadows and Benizmin's presumed death. Uh, and it starts with that scene in the cavern specifically because Gaborn, you know, he's using his earth powers. He's on top of things and all that. And the Reaver's like trying to stick his Reaver gig in there. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, the wild goes and breaks the Reaver's skull and oh, they yeah, drag that one out. And then the next nuts. Reaver in, you never actually see the Reaver. All you hear about is that a night gig absolutely teleports through the hole and hits Gaborn. It's yeah. so fast that not even Gaborn with his earth senses could dodge it. Mm-hmm. And and that's your first instance where you're like, hmm, that's a little different. You know, we He's we know Reavers are fast. We, we know they're faster than humans. Yeah. But that was crazy fast. And, like, it's from Iome's point of view, and, and she thinks something like, if she didn't see Gaborn go flying, she wouldn't have believed her eyes that yeah, it moved that I, fast. Yeah, you know the, the more you talk about it, the more that this specific moment is starting to come back to me. I remember, I do remember, the, and it was from Iomi's point of view for mm-hmm. sure, um, when this Reaver was moving so fast that not only with her endowments and metabolism could she not see it, yeah. but she would not have believed it if she hadn't seen the Earth King helpless yeah. against it. And right? so... But, I, but I, that, I'm starting to remember that, yeah. That sequence culminates with the Consort of Shadows finally appearing and Avarin recognizing him, and then he... Absolutely wrecks Benesman. And oh, yeah. And Benesman got there are these little things that build up over the course of the book with the consort of shadows where you're you're realizing, like, wait a second, 
this reaver has endowments of brawn and grace and metabolism. Yeah, that's a that's a slow reveal too, and I like the way Farlin handled that. Yeah, and and that's the uh, uh, my second scene is actually when Avarin and the Consort of Shadows meet again in the Lair of Bones, at, mm-hmm. like, the, the Throne of Bones. And they have this conversation, and there's really interesting character development that goes on with the Consort of Shadows, and it's mm-hmm. something that he could only do with what he did with Avarin's character in the previous book, where he uses her as a window into, oh, these are not just monsters bent on killing, they have their whole society and they, they are individual people or, or yeah. entities, not people, but... And so we see the Consort of Shadows, who is a warrior, who is, you know, dangerous and all this stuff, but has a spark of... I don't want to say humanity, because it's not humanity, but a, a personality and, and a thirst for autonomy. And he has this kind of crushing ending no pun intended, to his plotline where, <laughs> nice. you know, obviously he gets crushed by the, the, the earthquake, but he he is ready to make that step and and sort of meet Avarin on common ground, yeah. but he has a, like, a rune of compulsion set upon him by the one true master, and he cannot do it. Really? Yeah, he's, he tells Avarin, when she's trying to convince him, he tells her, like, I cannot do this. I have been compelled. Oh, oh, that's what that's what he meant by that. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and then so my... Uh, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to... I was going to go look up that quote in the book, but if you guys remember it, uh, I won't bother. Uh, but my third scene is probably, you know, obvious, but it's Raja Ten's death. And mm. I mean, it's been coming in for four books. It, so. it has been coming for four books. It it, yeah. it was it was kind of a a neat way for what seemed like a real like impossible problem in a couple of ways because he's not only mm. you know an invincible rune lord, but he's now also a flame weaver. And if you strike down his mortal body, he becomes a pretty elemental. much an unstoppable <laughs> elemental. Yeah. And yeah, so they on, you know, refrain from killing him, but chop off all his limbs, wrap him yeah. in multiple sets of chainmail, and throw him yeah. in the lake. Toss him into the lake, <laughs> and the water wizards will deal with him from here on out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about that scene. It was an interesting way to get rid of Rajatan, and I didn't see that coming. Like, I, like I obviously I wasn't sure how to get rid of Rajatan. It was creative, but I don't know. I kind of wanted him. And this is, again, this is where you kind of question your moral compass a little bit. I wanted him to go down fighting a little more. And there wasn't a whole lot of fight involved with Rajan's death, was there? Yeah, he, he was trying to, and then Murama got him with the arrow. With the arrow, yeah. So, I was kind of hoping he would go out in a blaze of glory, if you'll pardon the expression there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just kind of, instead it was just kind of dark and morbid and satisfying, but, I don't know, a little unsettling. But it was creative, so I'm fine with it because it was a really creative it way makes sense to get to from a logistical the perspective. So, uh, Rob, do you have your three scenes? Yeah, I could list them. Um, <clears throat> so, 
never, like what comes to mind right away was just Gaborn fighting the Reavers in the darkness, in the absolute darkness, with only the light from their runes to guide his way. Yeah. Um, it definitely harkens back to Raj Otten's whole fight with the Reavers in Book Three. Um, it was it was just I mean aesthetically speaking, that scene would be awesome on the big screen or to watch somehow. Yeah. Um, it was, it was definitely a very spectacular scene. Um, my second favorite scene. Um, and it, once again, I want to I want to make sure I, I state that I didn't have a whole lot of time to choose these. I might have different answers if I had actually thought ahead. But uh, just just coming, you know, from first impressions of what I remember of the book, my second favorite scene would be um, King Anders summoning the land bridge to Karis. I mean, to me, that was my like I said earlier in this episode, that was my first moment of oh crap. Um, he might actually have something. He might be onto something, and Gaborn might be le- legitimate trouble. But then, as you said, it was kind of nullified immediately afterward by Aaron Connell's good point of saying, oh, I didn't see the land moving. I just saw the influence of the wind. Um, but yeah, just because of how, how hard that hit me in, in the moment, specifically, that was uh, a very visceral reaction from me. And my third would... And it's actually not a scene. It's just one line. And it's actually... Um, an epigraph, the epigraph of the final chapter of the book, which just says, and I have it written down right here. Uh, the chapter is called home It's chapter 43 and, uh, the last, hold on right here. Oh, right here. Okay. Home is anywhere we find peace, a saying of Rovehaven. And aesthetically speaking, like to me, it kind of accomplishes in the reader's mind something akin to like a cinematic wide shot something like the camera pulling back to gaze over the world as a whole because i mean these these uh chapter epigraphs as they go along they're getting simpler and they're getting warmer and it's just you get this kind of feeling of peace and contentment out mm-hmm. of them so that that last chapter epigraph <clears throat> as the entire novel's coming to an end home is anywhere we find peace it just felt nice it felt yeah. like a perfect note like the final note of a, of a great opera it was just to me i felt like that was the perfect line to insert there just as so, a side note i really three. i really like the chapter epigraphs and how they kind of relate to what's happening in the chapter and i don't know yeah ooh, ooh. i mean drew can i sorry, go on? tack onto that uh so yeah, yeah. this is something that i i kind of mentioned i think in one of the very first rune lords episodes but how these books are broken up into days and each uh-huh. day has like a sort of subtitle where yeah. the, the first the first day of the first book is called a wonderful day for an ambush you know mm-hmm. and and they're subtitles for the days like that the subtitles okay. in this book are so cool so day four in the month of leaves is a day of descent like d-e-s-c you know like E-A-T. going down yeah which you know Makes sense, right? You know, they're they're heading into the underworld, but also it has, sure. you know, more connotations for, like, the impending doom of the world. And then day five in the month of leaves is the darkness deepens. And then day six, the final one, is called When True Night Falls. And I remember the first time I read this book and I saw it subtitled out and I was just, oh, man. It was so cool. <laughs> you get some chills? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that, that was pretty cool like and, and again like speaking of you know um just the aesthetic like the the the, the chapter headings uh or i should say the epigraphs the way the series begins and the way the series ends i noticed something rob kind of cool um at the very end 
of the narrative. And by the very end, I mean in the last chapter, during one of the final scenes, we, we get, again, the return of these effigies to the Earth King, mm-hmm. these little these little figures that are that are spread everywhere. And it kind of brings the narrative around full circle because that was, in, if you remember, that was one of the first images we got of this entire series. That yep. was in book one, chapter one, the first page was describing these effigies to the Earth King. So I found it really cool and really mm-hmm. quaint that um, one of the final scenes would be describing these effigies once again. It just it did definitely give it a feel of a full circle journey, for sure. Jared, do you have your three? So, yeah. yeah, so one of them's <laughs> overlapped with uh, Gaborn's kind of final battle where he only sees by the light of runes on the Reavers. Um, we both like that one, yeah. So that'd be one. The other two, I don't know, I think I kind of have different tastes from you guys where I kind of go for like the more quieter moments but the two that stuck out for me kind of both have to do with i think as a reader realizing what a character is going through mm-hmm. kind of their struggle so the first one was when a varin uh gets thrown in with the prisoners oh the Lightbringer. Lightbringer, and yeah, she light uh and you know she sees like her father's bones and granted, I'm sort of biased ha- having like family death. I can like relate to what she's probably going through. Yeah, sure. But as a character, you kind of realize like, as a ten year old, she has a lot on her shoulders. You know. She and does. yeah. In a related manner, my <laughs> my final scene was with Born when he comes across like the old stronghold where oh uh urban oh, yeah, urban, yeah. Ever, i think it was called urden gaborin urden gaborin had that book and he's sort of like yeah. leafing through it and he's kind of like realizing the enormity of the history that's behind yeah. him that he is responsible for and so that's just yeah. kind of another moment where you realize like you know what they're going through hmm. yeah <clears throat> And he found the uh, the Reaver spear, or what? Are they, what are they the Reaver dart, the, uh, Reaver yeah. lance, Reaver yeah. dart, uh, Reaver gar- oh, guard, dart, dart. Thank uh, you. And, and actually, <laughs> gonna bring that up. That's another like inconsistency where they're called Reaver darts all throughout the book, and then suddenly at the end they're called Reaver gigs. Because yeah, I I noticed the night gig earlier in the book, and I was what the hell is a gig? Yeah. And then near the end there was a, suddenly a Reaver gig. I didn't question that in the moment too yeah. i was like wait i haven't heard of this before but i yeah. don't know maybe maybe we give benefit of the doubt and assume it has multiple names i don't know um sure. i would just I, yeah. like i would say in general one thing i mean this is this is kind of a wrapping up point but one thing i really like with farland's writing is he has these quiet moments that are interspersed with these very like cinematic crazy violent scenes and right. i think it the, kind of it makes you appreciate them more you know, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah, that contrast, that juxtaposition between chaos and and kind of peace, but still have characters go through these major defining moments in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's really, really interesting to read. It doesn't keep you breathless all the way through for 150 pages like some authors like to do, which is great in its own way, but I don't think would have been appropriate for the Rune Lords. So yeah, I I agree with what Jared said. It's it's nice to have these kind of moments to take a breath in between, right? Um, I did think of one, actually, while one of you two were talking. I can't remember which one it was. But another uh, scene that stuck out to me that I really, really appreciated was just uh, the banter between 
Um, it was uh, oh, it was it was Chandler actually who had the great one-liner as he's talking to Borenson and he's saying how he needs more champions, you know, to hold the gate. He needs another champion to take all these endowments. And the way he poses the question to uh, Sir Borenson as if he's offering him something great, he goes, "So how about it? Want to die young?" Yeah. And I just I had a moment where I just stopped and chuckled. I was like, "That's great. I like that line. That was a great one-liner." right there so that's i guess that's an honorable mention for me was that sure. little throwaway laugh that i had in the middle of this huge dark situation yeah so we're we're getting close to the end of our time here uh yep yep before we go to the final draft do you, we have any you know just sort of last thoughts as we wrap up this series i have a few um i, I mean i just have my notes open in front of me so i can just choose any of them uh of the odd ones here um oh Raj Otten I didn't really talk much about Raj Otten but it was really cool to see his his rise to glory there uh near the end as he like as he prepared at least for battle he pulled all the heat from the flame weavers into himself oh, yeah. and then he had what I consider to be one of the most badass lines in all of epic fantasy so far and I know I, I say that a lot but this one was cool <laughs> he said Fear not, for I will vanquish all of your foes. My sword will fall upon the earth, and night shall be no longer. And that was a serious moment of chills I got in my spine. I was like, oh, man, he's such a well-written antagonist. Yes. He really is. Um, so that, that was just an honorable mention that I wanted to get aside there, was that, that cool. moment with Raj Otten. I, I don't know what the hell was going on with those good glories that kind of came to Gaborn's aid there. At the very end, to uh -huh. deal with the one true master, the regular glories, uh, I, not the darkling yeah, glories. Yeah, like I, I guess, yeah, like I guess, and I, I hope that we'll get a lot more, you know, information about them going on in the second arc, like the Signs of the Earth series. Um, but I will say, in that moment when Gaborn was fighting the one true master, I was rooting for him. I was like, okay, he's gonna find a way. And then suddenly, all these lights start appearing, all these glories start speaking to him, and the, and the glories are the ones that end up, you know, well, technically it was. Binnisman's wild that wild. ended up killing the the one true master um but i was just very confused in that scene and it didn't quite land for me in, in such a an important climactic moment i was confused because we hadn't seen these regular glories before like we, well, i guess we did we very briefly saw one a few chapters earlier but like i mean I, in that scene i was like what the hell are these things and how are they helping and where are they coming from and why like okay and then they just did most of the work and then in comes the wild and finishes the job but i was i'm still left kind of confused so i i mean i think for that alone i'm gonna want to read more so maybe that's maybe he's accomplished his purpose so my my kind of last little topic that i wanted to touch on is actually the wild which we didn't talk about at all in this book um, sure and how she oh, she gets unbound you know and just disappears uh -huh. for like three quarters of the book she's just gone oh yeah and yep. then shows up and <clears throat> it, against all expectation, she doesn't fight like we've been seeing her fight See, Reavers yeah, for two no, books. For sure. She basically just shows up and turns into a tree. Yeah, she shows up and goes, watch this, everybody. Boom. And she just turns into a giant tree that just obliterates the one. Didn't yeah. Varen reach out to her? Like... Varen did. She yeah. called the uh, wild. Um, mm -hmm. But Jared, Jared just kind of stole my point from me. It, like that... The way she kills the one true master, well, kills the Reaver one true master, is yeah. she she pulls a green man from uh, yep, the Wheel of Time. Yep, yep, I was waiting to bring up that point. Yeah. I think we were all three about to bring that up. Thank you. 
Um, and, and again, on the loosely on the subject of the wild, I want to go back to Binisman really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. When he died, and I say died with air quotes for mm-hmm. those who can't see. Um, I didn't buy it for a second. I knew he was going to no. be fine. As soon as, uh, as the, just merely the fact that they had to leave him behind made me go, oh, so he's going to show up in the nick of time and save Gaborn's whole party and their retinue, or maybe just Gaborn's life himself. I didn't expect for him to show up topside of all places. Yeah. I mean, you knew and, he had to, like, transition to winter, right? Yeah, oh, exactly. That was what I had written down here in my notes when I said, I knew it, in all caps. I knew it. I knew Binisman wasn't dead. It was the fact that they had to leave him behind that made me decide he was going to live on. Also, he hasn't shown what his winter's colors would be. Um, I did think he was going to show up in a moment of peril for Gaborn or save him or his party. Wasn't expecting him to show up topside of all places. But what I really want to know is, as soon as he showed up topside, he claimed that um, as soon as he was healed, he had matters to the east that he mentioned having to tend to before showing up. And I don't know if that was ever covered or if that's going to be covered later. Uh, but I, what were these matters to the east? I was under the was impression that he brought the uh, the warlords of Internook. That he went oh, to the courts okay. of Tide and, and oh, okay. that would told make them sense. to sail to Karis. Okay. Good. Okay. I'm um, going to take that as facts, you know, pending further investigation, because that was bothering me, so thank you. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. I think it was pretty telegraphed that he was coming back, especially because mm. of the circumstances and what specifically they did with him. Uh, yeah. It, because it's the exact same thing that happened to Murama. She was given a, yeah, a, she was... a deadly blow and was mm-hmm. consigned to the element for which she is a magician, a wizard. You know, yeah. so you put her in the water, she gets healed and she comes back. Put Benisman in the earth, he gets healed, and he comes back. So, yeah, I, I want to give a really quick shout out to the, to the concert of shadows once again too, and how clever his one move was when he was when he decided to kidnap Avarin yeah. rather than simply kill her. Because, and I don't know if he did this on purpose. He likely did, I think, with his cunning intelligence. But he captured her instead of killing her, because I guess Gaborn would have been able to sense her danger, wouldn't he? That's why Gaborn was caught completely by surprise, because I suppose the the Consort of Shadows, from the beginning, in that ambush, was planning not to kill her, but to capture her. So Gaborn's yeah. danger sense was completely, you know, nullified. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think that, uh, that about wraps up, that ab- yeah? About wraps up all my thoughts for, uh, you know, the fourth book of the Rune Lord series, The Lair of Bones. Sure. You guys the, only thing, to, uh... yeah, the only thing I was going to add is this kind of like Ooh, yes. a series wrap-up kind of thing, but I don't really feel like there's a weak book in the series. I kind of remember right. like having read this years ago thinking that Wizardborn was the weak point in the series, yeah. but on the yeah. second read-through, it really wasn't. Yeah, I, If I, I had almost... to choose one, I would guess the second book, I think. I, I, I... My favorite is still Brotherhood of the Wolf, <laughs> really? but I don't like, I don't think there's a weak point. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so no, going into this, would have a weak point. Yeah. Brotherhood of the Wolf was my favorite, and coming out of it, I think it still is, but it very narrowly edges out Wizardborn. I, I was extraordinarily impressed with Wizardborn this time around. Oh yeah, so was I. I mean, this is my first time, but I was definitely impressed with it. The only, I guess maybe the and this is kind of a picky thing for me to to say, but I guess maybe the main reason I wasn't so impressed with book two, and it's such a small stupid thing, but we I, the the name of the book didn't make sense until the last page. Yeah, yeah. Ah, see, I like maybe that. that kind of disenfranchised me a little bit. I was like, this make uh, what? How the oh oh okay. 
you know, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I left that book off. But uh, it could be that I'm just, you know, not remembering a huge majority of that book. Mm-hmm. I just uh, think for me, no, for me it was I think Wizardborn was the, was the best one for me. I think oh, no, like a, I'll, I'll say this one: the the pacing of this one was superb. As a four book arc, I think it was very well wrapped up. Yep. 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 Uh, it, it kind of to me feels a little bit unfinished, but that feels intentional. It doesn't feel right. like I'm missing out on anything so much as yeah. I just still need to continue. So uh, yeah, that that's about everything I have to say about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I would add one more thing. Oh, I think this sure. is, it's one of the best magic systems. Oh, certainly. Oh my god, for <laughs> sure. It, like, yeah. Um, it's definitely not a soft magic. I think as Sanderson classifies it. It's got its hard rules. Um, it's it, there's not a whole lot of just out of out of nowhere shortcuts with the magic system that don't really make a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Good kind. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed the magic system. I see Drew why you recommended this one. Why Brandon Sanderson recommends it. Um, it's definitely a solid magic system with solid world building, and I do look forward to to doing the second arc, Scions of, of the Earth, uh, eventually. For sure. Yeah, not not anytime soon. Probably we have no, a, a it's, lot it's of not stuff an, to get to yeah, before it's then. It's not on but... the forecast for the next you know few episodes for sure. <laughs> but it's it, I definitely do want to cover these in the future at some date. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, okay, so, you guys want to head into the final draft? Exactly. Uh, Perfect. Okay. Rob, kick us off. Okay, so um, I totally forgot to get a beer for this episode until about 10 minutes before we started recording. So I really, really quickly ran to the grocery store. I just, I, I actually managed to find one in under a minute that was kind of thematically appropriate. Um, over the court, oh, wait, hold on. It's very dark in here. I'm going to use my flashlight to find where I, oh, nope. I have the can right here. I am drinking today a Bone Shaker Unfiltered India Pale Ale. And of course, choice. I say it's thematically appropriate because yep. we are covering a book today called The Layer of Bones. Um, it's an IPA. It's pretty strong, if you can't tell by my slurring here. Uh, 7.1%. Um, very, very hoppy. Very, yeah. very sour. Um, dark, but delicious. And I, you know what? Knowing as, how strong it is, I think I will buy it again because it did the trick. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so, you guys. Yeah, uh, so, mine is not uh, thematically appropriate with the book, but is definitely... Uh... My style, as we have seen over these episodes. Um, <laughs> mine is called Dragon's Milk. Dragon's Milk. That's pretty metal, man. I love it. <laughs> uh, it is a barrel-aged stout, bourbon barrel-aged stout, that is 11%. You really like your dark beers, eh? Your stouts? Oh, definitely a stout guy. So uh, Nice. No. Quite good. Highly recommended. Um, Dragon's Milk. I want to name like a... If you have to drive, though... <laughs> You're somewhat limited to one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. And Drew, what are you drinking today? So I did have something thematically appropriate, similar to Rob's. Uh, I have a sour ale from Firestone Walker called Creaky Bones. Creaky Bones? Uh, And that is Creek as in like the the Belgian style, uh, like uh, uh, a fermented fruit beer, cherry beer. Uh, it's spelled oh. K R I E K. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So this this is a uh, a sour ale brewed with cherries, uh, aged in French oak barrels. It is very sour. Uh, if you're into sour <laughs> beers, if you want something that's really gonna 
you know, smack your tongue around, uh, this is going to do the trick for you. It'll, Sweet. it hits hard up front with all that sour cherry and finishes with a really nice oaky flavor. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, not, not my best, you know, thematic alignment, but <laughs> I, I think it was appropriate for Lair of Bones nonetheless. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, that that's good. That's I mean, fair. You're gonna keep up this thematic oh, alignment. Freak. Oh yes. How long? I'm is just, this gonna go I'm on? just glad that I managed to find one in less than a minute today. I saw the word bone in my peripheral vision. Went <laughs> there. It is right there. Bone shaker. I was like, perfect. Seven point one percent. Get it in me. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So are we? Uh, are we about wrapping up this episode ten of the Inking Out Loud podcast? Uh, yeah, I think we are. Uh. uh... As usual, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you, everybody. Next time up, we're going to be covering A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, we are. Uh, I have not read that. Rob has. Uh, we're going to have a, a different special guest on for that one. Um, yeah. Who has also read that book, so I'm going to be the newbie on that one. But, uh, yeah, so as usual, uh, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me, your co-host, Rob Santos, and our very special guest, Jared Livingston. Yo. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Until next time, everyone. Bye, everyone. Peace. <laughs>